Hey, and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 256. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. And today, I am speaking directly to those of you who feel anxious during interviews and other high-pressure public speaking scenarios. I'm so delighted to be sitting down with Dr. Amanda Tobe, who has her PhD in organizational psychology. She's based in Toronto and works with clients to build their confidence, manage stress, communicate effectively, and overcome performance anxiety in the workplace. Amanda's written several publications on public speaking and job interview anxiety and has been featured in media outlets like Inc.com, Harvard Business Review, and the Journal of Business and Psychology. Amanda previously worked for five years in talent management and consulting and in the last two years made a major career pivot, wanting to help others find their inner voice and unleash their full potential. Amanda, welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. I'm really excited to dive into your area of expertise because I love that you have a pretty multidisciplinary background. Can you tell our listeners how you got into this work and and how you've arrived at the coaching and consulting and research that you do now? Sure. So I actually did my master's and PhD in industrial organizational psychology And after getting my master's and PhD, I went on to work internally and also to do consulting work for about five years. I worked in a specialized niche within HR called talent management. So I dealt with topics related to career development and succession planning and talent assessment. I really liked what I did, but I was actually on my second mat leave with my second daughter. I have two young girls at home. And I decided that I wanted to do a bit of a, of a reflection on what I was doing with, with my career and really wanting to feel more fulfillment and wanting to feel more passionate about what I was doing and really want to love what I was doing. I think so many people think it's, you know, like, I like my job. That's great if you like it, but can you actually then love it? Right. And so I did a lot of reflection during that year. And I I will have to say, I actually probably entertained about five different career choices before landing on this one, um, which is now pursuing my license as an organizational psychologist. And I think a big part of my story and during that year was really listening to my inner voice, Emily, and just really getting clear on what I wanted to do. And I didn't want to be influenced by what other people thought I should do. And I was really committed to enjoying the process. Cause I think a lot of the time with the career search process, it's met with a lot of uncertainty. Um, and people feel this sense of needing to know right away. And that kind of gets in the way of us finding out what it is that we want to do. So where I'm at now, again, as I'm pursuing my license, I'm entering the second year of pursuing my license and, um, working with really interesting people in, in the corporate world who have confidence issues, I would say that's kind of the common thread where I work with people. But um, more specifically than that, I work with people with um, performance anxiety, for example, so public speaking apprehension. Um, with communicating effectively, I really work with my clients on that and developing emotional intelligence, um, coping with stress. And those are just a few of the different areas. And then another one also is like the career transitioning bucket side of things and really helping my clients, similar to my story, but to help them to pursue the job search process in a value-driven way. 
I love that. I mean, so many of my listeners, I'm sure, are nodding their heads vigorously right now because, like myself, I went through a career transition early on in my career as well. And it is such a vulnerable process if you actually lean into that question, what would it look like to do what I love, which can be in some ways kind of a privileged question. But in others, it's just the fight for our lives, right? It's the fight to actually do work that you feel like you're meant to do in this world and have the audacity to believe that you're worthy of that can be challenging in a world that especially does not tell women nor people of color that we have the right to show up in our lives that way. So I was just going to say, I find it really interesting that you called it a privilege and I've never thought of it like that before. And that really stuck with me when you said that, but it, it, it is a privilege. But I think for me too, I was just going to say that it was really connecting with my why that kind of got lost along the way. And I think some of us um, I guess stop to lose that sense of reflection on what we truly want mm. to do and what lights us up when there's certain topics we talk about, we just automatically <laughs> sparkle when we talk about them. So I think that that's a really good kind of guiding post for figuring, figuring out if you can kind of make a living from doing what it is that really lights you up. Right. Absolutely. And I think the answer for some folks is no. <laughs> and that's also okay because your passion doesn't always need to yield a paycheck, but you know, for those who are searching for purpose and feel anxious along the way, who feel anxious about a lack of clarity in their career or feel anxious just in that performance anxiety arena when it comes to the job interview process, a lot of my career coaching clients who are navigating a career transition feel like a total imposter when they're, you know, applying to data scientist positions and interviewing for them when they've had an accounting position for the past 10 years. How do you begin to disentangle yourself from that anxiety response? Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what that challenge really looks like and some of the solutions that you find yourself uh, recommending? A lot of um, imposter syndrome that I work with my clients through and also the public speaking anxiety, interview anxiety side of things really seems to be traceable back to our core beliefs and core beliefs are ones that we are raised with that have been instilled in us since since we were very at a very young age through our parents through schooling through our friends through the news through many different domains and so it's a bit of a reset that i think that i take my clients through that journey of a reset on their core beliefs and it's like how do we you know, review your current set of beliefs. So I call the three R's. We work through how to review that set of beliefs, um, how to then rewrite them, and then how to rewire your brain so that going forward, you can really start to embody a new set, new set of beliefs. But the first step is really about the self-awareness and getting clear on, on the beliefs that aren't serving you. So we go through a pretty detailed process of getting clear on those beliefs. And it's not a process that happens overnight. Right. I mean, that's part of the journey, right? Is that it just takes time and a willingness to explore your own unconscious beliefs, right? That can be challenging, if not triggering, if not fully traumatizing, right? I mean, that's why you're in this process, I guess, uh, of being fully certified <laughs> in this, because it is not just an easy process to walk people through. Do you feel like there's an element of trust involved in working with people on this? There's a big element of trust when, when working with people on this. And 
Um, a lot of the time my clients will say to me, like, no one knows this about me or haven't shared this with people before. So just by virtue of those statements alone, you know that they're putting a lot of their faith and trust into working with you. And such a core part of psychology as a profession is the confidentiality piece. And so that the trust element is absolutely critical to having that coaching or therapeutic alliance with someone. Um, but really, so again, it's about unpacking those beliefs and um, I've created a workbook on it. So to help with even getting myself to work with people on it, where I include examples of some beliefs relating to some categories. So the first step is really to go through, I have like a list of over 20 categories. So for example, like perfectionism or rejection or failure and achievement. And so I go through a process of asking them just to circle the categories um, where you might have a self-limiting belief that we should explore further. And it's actually a very intuitive process. It's very intuitive for them to just circle the categories. That's usually the easier step. Um, and then it's actually like unpacking that. What, what is the belief that's there? And what is the ideal belief? And then also what's a stepping stone belief to getting there? Because let's say if the belief is, um, it is really important what people think of me. Let's say that's a belief that someone has. Getting to the ideal belief, let's say if, if someone has an ideal belief, which is that um, I don't care what people think of me or, or I only care what certain people think of me, sometimes you need a stepping stone to get there because they're not necessarily going to believe that yet. Like it, it's kind of a process to get there. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine how that has to do with self-discovery, but also cultural messages, right? Like a lot of these beliefs aren't just derived from our own personal upbringing and household, but also the ideals <laughs> that society tells us all the time. Do you feel like for women in particular, the messages we receive influence our ability to, to show up in, in our careers in that way? Or, or do you feel like there are gender or cultural differences in the clients that you work with? I think as women in particular, um, we place a great deal of emphasis on what other people think of us. And I work with actually primarily women. Um, it's not that I don't work with men. It's just I actually, for some reason, attract more women in terms of the people that I do work with. But I think that, I mean, even on Instagram, we saw the bold move that Instagram made last year, which was to remove the likes and the number of likes that, you know, different posts will show. And I just, I see from the other side of it. I mean, that's just one example, but that's a very explicit in your face, kind of like if people approve or some people take that as approval, right? They'll take that as like, as an indicator of what other people think of them. And so I think the same thing happens though, in the workplace where we, again, put this pressure on ourselves to, to be likable. And I think really it results in a fear of negative evaluation for many women where we are worried about being judged by others, we are worried about saying or doing the wrong thing, worried about other people finding fault with us, and just, again, worrying about being liked. And I'm not saying it's just women, though, because I do know a lot of men also struggle with this. And some research actually suggests that women are more likely to actually seek help with these types of issues, and men are less apt to. In fact, that's what we found in my research on interview anxiety, is that men tend to engage in more avoidance-oriented coping strategies, whereas women are actually more likely to get out there and to practice and to talk to friends Like from, from an emotional standpoint. They're also a lot more likely to actually talk about things that they're struggling with. Amanda, you mentioned negative evaluations. And I wonder, you know, if someone is a nervous speaker, even just in everyday workplace situations, not just in interviews and, and giving public, you know, speeches, 
how do we begin to lessen that fear or, or reduce our fear around being evaluated negatively? The one strategy I use a lot with my clients is that we work on creating an anxiety hierarchy, which is if you picture a pyramid on a page with, let's say, eight levels of this pyramid, at the bottom of the pyramid are the situations that scare you the least, let's say with public speaking, and at the top of the pyramid are the situations that would scare you the most. And so what you do with this pyramid is you work your way up from the situations that scare you the the least. And so you kind of work your way up that ladder little by little to get there. So you're not just going to deliver a keynote to 500 people when you haven't, let's say, facilitated a webinar or something like that. So I think that's a really big one. Another one I wanted to highlight is mindfulness and really trying to be more of a curious observer of, of our thoughts when they come up. So a lot of people get really panicked when it comes to feeling public speaking anxiety, like I'm losing control is a very common thought that people have when it comes to that. So rather than, let's say, when that thought comes up, maybe just saying, you know what, my, my heart's just racing more quickly and I'm just noticing some symptoms more as a curious observer, which is really rooted in mindfulness. So being more curious of that and maybe saying to yourself, this is happening because I know that this is important to me. That is such a good point because I've been really increasing my meditation practice lately just because of hashtag 2020 everything, right? But one of the skills I was just discussing with my one of my good girlfriends, Vanessa, is being able to actually observe your feelings as a passive outsider without judgment instead of feeling those feelings and having those feelings take you away, right? The anxiety, the heart palpitations, the breath getting shallow, you know, sort of that passive observer is such an interesting skill set to begin to establish that I think, I think it just takes so much work. It like takes a lot of practicing mindfulness to get there, right? Because that's not an easy thing to, to shift mentally. It's definitely one of those things that's easier said than done. Um, and really what some people call it as, you know, riding the wave versus fighting the wave. And so when you know that the wave is coming, trying to work to a place, I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight, but working to a place where you can accept that you're probably going to feel the butterflies. You're probably going to get red in the face like you normally always do, but are you fighting it? And I think that that's where we have this like relationship with public speaking where we we feel this anxiety and we see it as a bad thing again, versus that performance energy, which we just talked about because anxiety when it's channeled positively can actually be a really good thing. And so learning to see it a little bit differently. And then the other thing I was going to highlight too, is the powerful effects of breathing. And although breathing is more of the physiological component, it is still indirectly related to the cognitive side of things. And really when we're talking about breathing, it's, about can we um, deactivate our sympathetic nervous system and can we activate our parasympathetic nervous system? And the parasympathetic nervous system is the one that you want. That leaves us feeling really calm and at ease. And that's the one that we want to try to bump up when we are feeling a bit more anxious. So for example, to do that, I work with um, some people to try different types of breath work. For example, I'm not sure if you've heard of the Wim Hof method. You breathe in and out 30 breaths very vigorously in and out for 30 breaths. You hold your breath for a minute to a minute and a half and you do one more breath hold at the, at the top for 15 seconds and like let it all out. It leaves your body feeling kind of tingly and numb in some places, but it really helps to 
hyper oxygenate the body. And so it really helps you to be in a much more calm place. So for example, if that's something that works really well for you, build that into your routine when it comes to public speaking so that like a routine, let's say of doing certain things before, for example, some, some of my clients will say they have to go for a run before. So if you know you have to go for a run before, I mean, it's gonna be harder if you're within the corporate office world, right? But um, you know, trying to build the things into your routine that make you feel more calm and at ease. And for a lot of people, they really love breath work. Wim Hof method. That's so interesting. Definitely something to add to our toolkit when it comes to breath being used to calm the nervous system. That is so great, Amanda. Tell me more about this interview anxiety research. What was the goal of the research and what did you find? When I actually started studying it, there was very little research out there on the topic. But one of the, I think, findings of my research over the years that excites me the most was with my PhD research, we had a community-based sample of 110 individuals who ranged in age from 20 to over 60 years old who struggled with interview anxiety. So they signed up to the study because they self-identified as having interview anxiety. One of the most interesting questions is that I asked people at the end of every mock interview that they had with is, you know, what did your anxiety feel like? And they all talked about this self-preoccupation that happens and it's self, basically it's like a self-focused attention Mm -hmm. that happens where we focus on how bad our anxiety feels. And we also think that it looks just as bad as it feels. And people talked about their anxiety feeling like racing thoughts or, you know, too much going on in my head and an inability to concentrate, um, a huge distraction factor that was there. And so one of the big insights in my research was really that I, uh, that we basically thought that it, it's this self preoccupation that happens that really, um, distracts us from being present with interviewers and in fact, there's a there's a really consistent negative correlation between interview anxiety and interview performance, where the higher the interview anxiety you have in an interview, the lower interview performance rating you tend to receive. So we were really looking at the why, like what's causing that. And so I think what's happening is that we're, we're becoming so cognitively taxed in the job interview where we can't possibly be present if we're so worried and focused on ourselves. So interesting, right? Because it... Sounds to me almost like interview anxiety robs you of that moment of being truly present and connecting with this other person. It's more like you're looking in the mirror thinking all of these negative thoughts about yourself to the point where you can't even see the other person who's there waiting to hear the great things you have to say. And it's so ironic in that way because it makes you self-focused instead of being other-focused, audience-focused, which is sort of the key, I think, to connecting authentically with another human being in an interview. I mean, I feel the same way when I'm feeling especially neurotic or self-conscious. We become very inward-facing, right? So I know one of the things that you've spoken on a lot in terms of overcoming anxiety, whether it's in the interview or in any public speaking environment is visualization. I'd love to learn more. If you had to break it down into the most simple, understandable, comprehensive way, like what what does visualization really mean to you? Visualization is a process of envisioning a mental picture of a future event and conjuring up that image as concretely and as vividly as you can using our five senses. But that's not to say that you're necessarily using all five senses. And usually we find that one or two um, senses tends to dominate. 
But for me, actually, visualization is even more so about connecting with a feeling than it is about an actual specific image. Also, I think visualization for me is a form of intention setting. And it's always surprising to me when I speak to my clients about like, do they do intention setting before meetings start? And most of them don't do that. So we really work on that as a place to start. Um, And then the other thing about visualization, I really believe is that it opens opens us up to new ways of being and it helps us to reach our goals and to work through places maybe where we've gotten stuck before. Um, There's a lot of positive, I think, benefits of visualization and a lot of it has to do with actually getting, feeling like you're getting practice in the moment of kind of thinking through the experience or the situation that's at hand for you. Yeah, I almost, it's interesting, right? Because you and I, before we hit record here, we're kind of joking about how we are not very woo-woo people. <laughs> and yet we both find the value in intention setting and visualization, but it can feel a little silly. Like what would you say to the person who's like, you want me to do what? You want me to close my eyes and envision myself getting this job and nailing this interview? Like why, Amanda? That seems so silly. But what what's your take on the on the, not just the hard science behind it, but the real like concrete uh, benefits. If you could elaborate on that, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Sure. I think it has a lot to do with the intention setting piece of visualization. And in fact, one of the places I have my clients start with visualization and even for myself is to write it down first. And I think a lot of the time that people close their eyes and they're like, I don't see anything. (laughs) And it's like, well, you haven't put any intention yet behind what you want to see. And so the first step I always work with people on is writing it down first. So for example, if we're talking about public speaking for myself too, visualize, how do I want to feel? So for example, even in preparing for this podcast today, you know, thinking about how do I want to feel here talking to you? How do I want to think? How do I want to be? And then also from the audience standpoint, so the people listening to this podcast, how are, how do I want them to feel on the other end? What key messages do I want them to get? And then also you as the podcast interviewer. So it's really thinking about through all those different pieces, but really starting with the feelings piece first to really think about how do you want to feel when you're actually up here? So, and getting really specific about those feelings. So for example, for me today, feeling immersed and and present with you and feeling energetic and focused, like those were some of my words that came up for me today. But I also really recommend for people to do this, not just in like really unique situations, but like, let's say you're heading into a a weekly meeting that you have. That's another example of not just saving visualization for the really high stakes or the, the really kind of atypical situations in our life, trying to use it more for the, the daily ways of trying to level up your life. Yeah. I love that. You're reminding me so much of this opening exercise that we used to do at our signature in-person weekend-long training program, Bossed Up Bootcamp, which of course is on hold indefinitely, which it makes me sad because I think so much happens at in-person events, but hopefully they'll be back someday soon. And you're up in Canada, by the way, right? You're in Ontario? I'm located, yeah, in Toronto, Ontario, in Canada. That's right. Toronto was the last city I was in before everything got shut down. So I love your neck of the woods and I cannot wait to get back on the road when all of this virus is hopefully behind us. But at Boston Bootcamp, 
We start the weekend with a visualization exercise that we call Welcome to Your 10-Year Reunion. And we have women get up and speak using the present tense as though we are 10 years into the future. So in this case, it would be 2030. And they go around speaking with three different women who they just met and saying, hey, it's been so long. Let me catch you up on what I've been up to over the past 10 years. Speaking off the cuff in a way that makes people very nervous at first. And then they kind of get into it on three different occasions, like all about what they see for themselves in the next 10 years. But because they're saying it retroactively, the stakes feel a little lower. People get creative. And it's almost this way of mining their own unconscious desires. And then we sit them down, reflect as a group, and have them write what they heard. And there's something really interesting that happens between the verbal and then the the written part where people either get very nervous because they're like, I can't write this down. Then it's a real plan and I have to do it. Or people find that like they can process more easily in written format as opposed to verbal format. So it's just a it's like a powerful exercise that women over and over again say to me, and I'll, I'll get DMs on Instagram or emails in my inbox years later saying that exercise changed my life. And it's just amazing how much visualization can help you tap into what is already true for you that you're just totally not conscious of, right? One other thing I've tried to add to my visualization practice too, and I love what you're saying in terms of thinking about, you know, the end state in five, 10 years, but I actually heard, was listening to a podcast recently from Nur Ayal. In in this post or in the story, in this podcast, he talks about how one of the things we sometimes miss with visualization is that we don't actually visualize the choice points along the way. And we don't always visualize the actions that we need to take or the places where we typically get stuck. And so that's a place now where I'm, I'm also putting some more of my energy into thinking about and to visualizing what, what are the actions I need to take? What's the process going to look like? Where do I get stuck? And how can I visualize myself overcoming those barriers and those obstacles? I love that. In um, this book that I always reference on this kind of thing called Switch, How to Change When Change is Hard by Dan and Chip Heath, they talk about the challenges of long-term motivation requiring both the head and the heart or the metaphor that they use that they borrowed from someone else. I can't remember who. The rider and the elephant. So the rider's on top of the elephant, watching out for pitfalls along the way, predicting challenges, predicting roadblocks that they'll have to overcome so that they can visualize how they'll solve a problem ahead of time. And then the elephant is that deep desire, that burning desire, that fire in your belly that says, you know what? You really don't want to be a lawyer, actually. Don't go to law school. <laughs> or this is what you really want. You want a career in helping people to, to be more confident public speakers and more confident career switchers. So that sort of fire in your belly also needs that analytical rider on top of the elephant saying, you know what? You typically have trouble when this happens. So how are we going to solve for that ahead of time? That's such a good point. I love that metaphor of, of riding on the elephant in terms of the fire in your belly. That's really, I think what I used as like my compass for deciding what it is that I wanted to do. And, and actually, in fact, I really leaned on Danielle Laporte's work. Are you familiar with her work? Mm, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. The desire map. Yeah. Her desire map and core desire feelings. And really I selected 
five words that became my compass in deciding what it is I wanted to do. So there was actually a week where I was like, oh, I thought of a really cool app idea. And I was like, oh, this is a super cool app idea. I know this would take off. I knew it would do really well. But then I was like, but do I actually really want to do that? Can I envision myself doing all those parts of the process? Right. And enjoying all the, the pieces of marketing it and like just really thinking through what, what what it meant for me. And so I really came back to my compass and I was like, nope, probably not a good idea. Um, so I, mm-hmm. I probably assessed about four or five different ideas that I came up with and then would just come back to that compass, which was the fire in my belly mm-hmm. and the five words that really guided me along the way. I think one of the tensions in visualization that I I think has been bubbling beneath the surface this whole time, and you hit the nail on the head when mentioning Danielle Laporte, is the, the difference between, and I don't have a strong opinion on this, it's more like I think there are differences in the research on this, but the difference between aiming for a feeling state, like I want to be free, versus aiming for a smart goal strategic, measurable, actionable, whatever, realistic, like, I want to have a million in the bank. (laughs) You know, do you want to aim for feeling free? Or do you want to aim for a million in the retirement fund? You know what I mean? Like, I'm just curious from a practitioner standpoint, do you feel like those two things are at odds with each other? Do you are you in one camp or the other? What's your take on how that plays into visualization? I find it to be a really interesting one that I haven't thought about. But I will say there is something really special that happens when you start with your core desired feelings and letting maybe the smart goals flow from there. Like I think starting with the the desire mapping or the core desired feelings and just, it doesn't have to be some like really fancy exercise that you do. For me, I didn't really even know much about Danielle Laporte's work at the time. I just wrote down a few words on a page that I felt like were really important to me um, and guiding me. And so, and then coming back to those words and then designing your SMART goals, it's almost like the getting to the why before the how. And I see the SMART goals as being more of the how. That's a good point. Yeah. I had an interview recently with Dr. Lori Santos on the podcast who studies happiness and she's a professor at Yale. And one of the funny things that she said, and that also came up on a recent episode I did around minimalism with Courtney Harver was that we as human beings are not good at predicting what will make us happy, (laughs) right? So one of the challenges, and I don't know if you face this or find your clients face this, but I I almost feel like there's an initial revolution that happens that for me happened in my early 20s when I was like, you know what? This life is not what I want. Let me head in this direction. And we, we kind of get clear on what we want and come up with a plan for what we think will get us there. And then there's this constant process of coming back to that, like you mentioned, coming back to what you're aiming for and saying, does this app align with my plans? Does this app align with my core desired feelings or whatever it might be? And if it's true that we're not good at predicting what will make us happy, you know, how often do we have to come back to that? I always wonder, like, how often should we be checking in with ourselves and saying, am I still on that path? Am I still feeling true to who I am and who I want to be? Um, and I just wonder, like, what that iterative process looks like for you and and what you would advise folks to do. Because it's not like a one and done situation, right? That's a really good reflection question, just even for myself, because 
going through the licensing process has been a tremendous amount of work for me, like really tremendous in terms of the studying involved and retraining plans that I need to do and the out like the 3000 hours that I need to accumulate. Like it's a lot, a lot of work. And of course, just like anything else, I, I face my own kind of challenge points along the way and days where it all feels like too much. Um, and those are the days when I do come back to, of course, there's, there's days where anyone's going to say, no, is this all worth it? Right. And I think that that's maybe kind of tapping into what your last guest was also talking about. It's like, you know, are we good predictors of what's going to make us happy? Um, but when I've kind of come back to my why for me personally, I know that's not the case for everybody. And I, I know there's a lot of people with really great ideas and necessarily like things don't always land the way you think they're going to land. So I don't also want to paint a picture for everyone of saying, if you're, if you know your why it's all going to be roses and, you know, sunshine and unicorns and all that. But for me really like knowing the why and being really clear about that, upfront, I, th- I think was a big help in me knowing that I'm in a place where I should be. Mm, yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's an evaluation that you can now practice regularly. When you have an idea that sparks your fancy like this app, you can measure it against your why and say, does this align? And sometimes that means, you know, I guess just like focusing in on that which feels truly like it's it's the right path for you. I don't know. It's a t- it's a tough question. We could be philosophers here, you know, till the end of time trying trying to figure out the chicken or egg problem between visualization and and action, but it is something I think about a lot because I think there is such value in vision, but there's also so much learning that only happens once you get moving. Right? You got to start Absolutely. And the other distinction I feel like that really helped me, and this is me a really hard one to fully explain, is just that to differentiate and distinguish when our heart's involved and when our ego's involved. And I think a lot of people, it's very, I think it's human tendency to go after the fancy titles. And I've heard this so often from people that, you know, they had these dream jobs on paper, they got promoted so quickly, but still end up being unhappy, to your point. Um, And I think we talked about this earlier, but I think it's part of it. It's listening to your inner voice, listening, to, finding your heart in all of this and learning to separate what's your heart and what's your ego saying on the matter. Totally. I love that. I think that is a good takeaway to end on. I could talk to you all day, clearly, because you have such a fascinating area of study. And I'm so delighted that our paths have crossed. Amanda, tell us where our ladies can catch up with you, learn more about your work and, and work with you. Sure. So people can, I think the easiest way is to either follow me on Instagram. My handle is Tobe, or you can email me at amanda at busickpsychology.com, either or. Um, and one of the things that I really enjoy doing right now is writing. And so I love putting out blog posts that really makes research accessible to people. I try to put it out in a conversational kind of format I include resources to other people's information, whether it's a podcast I heard, an article, a book I read. So I really try to connect with that. And same on my Instagram account. And with Busick Psychology and the practice where I work, we've put together 
a workbook on, on how to lead effectively with COVID and how to create psychologically safe workplaces and psychologically safe teams. And it's available for free. So I'm not sure if we can make that available in the show notes. Yeah. And it's also though about how to lead with your emotions. And I think the word emotion scares a lot of people in the business world. And then I was just going to mention also that one of the best books that I give as a referral to people with um, public speaking anxiety is a book called In the Spotlight by Jana Esposito. And it's a book that's not new. It was published, I don't know how many, maybe probably a decade or so ago. Um, but the feedback that I've heard from other people and my own experience in kind of feeling some public speaking anxiety and, and reading that book is just there's so many tangible strategies. And she and it's actually also spoken and written by somebody who went through it herself. So she really comes at it from that perspective. But I would really recommend that to people who also experience this and go through it. Awesome. Thank you so much for all of these great recommendations, Amanda. I will put links to all of them in today's show notes. And I so appreciate you taking time out of your day to share with our listeners. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to everyone who's listening. To learn more and get links to everything mentioned in today's episode, head to bossedup.org slash episode 256 for all of today's show notes. Now, for today's boss move, I want to share a snippet of an email that a job search client of mine recently sent in. Um, in this case, she was actually checking in with her entire hired cohort. She's been a member of our hired three-month job search accelerator and continues to keep in touch with her colleagues even after they graduated from the program. Here's what she writes. Hey, all. Any updates? I hope you're doing well. I sent my resume to a recruiter slash talent acquisition friend of mine, and she had the below to say, quote, received, I love your resume. I can tell exactly what you're passionate about and what you're going after. For once, I literally have nothing I want to change, end quote. Definitely uplifting. Cheers all, Erin. And I want to congratulate you for working so hard over the past three months in our hired program to polish your resume. Obviously, all that hard work paid off. And trust me, y'all, there was a lot of hard work that goes into polishing your resume and hired because we spend a good deal of time on that. It is your first impression, after all, on the job hunt. And you've put in so much other hard work, Erin. So I just want you to know all of that networking, all of that storytelling practice, all of the cover letter writing and personal branding and online presence polishing is going to pay off. I know it can feel like a long road, but I'm so encouraged by this wonderful feedback and want to wish you the absolute luck in the interviews that you're preparing for. Congratulations, boss. If you want to learn more about Hired, my three-month job search accelerator program, space is limited and every month our cohorts fill up pretty fast, but you can head to bossedup.org slash get hired to learn more. Thank you for tuning in, y'all. I want to hear from you. What did you think about my conversation with Amanda today? Do you ever experience interview anxiety or struggle to just speak up and make your voice heard without the jitters knocking you out? I want to hear about it. Tag me on social media at Emily Aries or Bossed Up Org. Or if you know someone who could really benefit from all the brilliance that Amanda had to share, Make sure to share this episode now by sharing the URL bossedup.org slash episode 256. That's the best place to 
grab the episode and all the show notes in one place. Throughout this pandemic, we have been hustling behind the scenes here. You know, in addition to podcasting twice a week, we have created and launched three new programs. And I like to think that the quality of this podcast has not suffered as we've been pivoting and reinventing our business model here. So I want to ask you a favor right now, dear listener. If you have benefited from this podcast, would you do me the honor of rating and reviewing this show in Apple Podcasts right this minute? If you're listening in your Apple Podcasts app and you can actually review directly in the app, if you're listening elsewhere, Spotify, Stitcher, etc., your rating and reviewing makes a huge difference in how our show gets visibility. Your word of mouth support, your rating and reviewing goes a long way. And Stacy, our new podcast editor turned production assistant, who is absolutely crushing it, is just two months in on the Bossed Up team here. She and Kirby, our marketing director, are working really hard behind the scenes to get our show seen and heard by lots of other people right now. So I know that they would join me in saying we really appreciate your support as a listener and as someone who shares the shows that have made a difference for you. So thank you in advance for your support and your sharing of the Boss Tech Podcast. All righty, y'all. I want to sign off today with the saying that you hear me say a lot around here, but I want to make it super clear. I say this every now and then, but I have to say it more often is the motto of the first Black Women's Association and advocacy group here in the U.S. who were the first to use Lift As We Climb as their motto. Thank you for listening. Let's keep bossing in pursuit of our purpose. And together, let's carry on that tradition and lift as we climb.